LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Dr. Bruce Lipton an internationally recognized authority on bridging science and spirit and author of The Biology of Belief, Unleashing the Power of Consciousness, Matter and Miracles, and more recently, co-author of Spontaneous Evolution, Our Positive Future and a Way to Get There from Here. We discuss the amazing new awareness that is currently rewriting the science of biology and medicine, awareness that the mind's perception of the environment, not genes, controls life at the cellular level and also how our changing understanding of biology will help us navigate this turbulent period in our planet's history and how each of us can participate in this global shift. Hello and welcome Bruce Lipton and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, Greg, I am so excited to be here and I thank you for this opportunity to speak to the public with some very important uh, timely messages about the events in our uh, upside down world here. Yeah, well, today, Bruce, we're going to be talking about a lot of the ideas um, and new information that's coming out of your work and specifically documented in two books, uh, your Biology of Belief, which came out back in 2006, though that has since been updated uh, to reflect new research. And also uh, last year, uh, 2011, a book called Spontaneous Evolution, Our Positive Future, uh, which was uh, co-authored with Steve, is it Behrman? Behrman, yes, absolutely. Steve Behrman. And perhaps we should set the scene uh, for folks here and the fundamental uh, concept that underlies your work um, is to do with our genes, which um, a lot of people have the basic perception that genes control what we, not only what we look like, but quite often how our lives play out and uh, what people expect to happen and what they believe is dictated uh, by forces outside of their control. But so perhaps you could give us the big picture that underlies all of this, because uh, your take on this is really quite different. Yeah, well, uh, if I could very quickly just uh, relay a very simple experiment that occurred about 45 years ago. I was working on stem cells, and about 45 years ago, there was only a handful of us in the entire world that even knew what a stem cell was. So I was in a small but uh, very interesting group of researchers. Uh, a stem cell, just very simply, is this. It's the equivalent of an embryonic cell. It, has, uh, it could form uh, any uh, cell type or tissue type in your entire body. Uh, stem cells are very important for a simple reason is that every day, uh, just through uh, age and trauma and and, uh, falling apart, we lose hundreds of billions of our cells through uh, attrition. They just get lost. Well, the idea that's really important is you cannot do this without replacing the cells, otherwise we'd die out. 
So how do we replace all the cells that are damaged and lost in our body, like our skin cells or something like this? It's like the digestive tract, the lining of this very long digestive tract. The cells are replaced every three days. That's like a trillion cells. You know, it's like, okay, where are you getting the cells from? The answer is stem cells. Uh, uh, and they're like leftover embryonic cells. They were, they were called embryonic cells the moment before you were born. And after you're born, I look at the same cell and say, now it's a stem cell because you're not an embryo anymore. So I just want people to understand a stem cell and embryonic cell are functionally the same. So uh, what was the point? I put one stem cell in a Petri dish all by itself, and it would divide every 10 or 12 hours. Uh, the net result is in one week, I have about 50,000 cells in the Petri dish. But the most important point is all the cells are genetically identical because they came from the same source. But here's the experiment. I, I take these 50,000 genetically identical cells, split them up into three different Petri dishes and change the environment ever so slightly. And the environment for a cell, just think of a cell like a fish. It needs to live in fluid. And that's why when you cut yourself open, fluids run out because it's like an aquarium inside. And the culture medium in a culture dish is to replicate that internal condition as best we can. So the cells growing in the plastic dish are uh, more like they're at home uh, as I can make them. So here's the point. 50,000 genetically identical cells split into three Petri dishes, change the culture medium, the environment, slightly in each dish. And one dish, the cells form muscle. A second dish, the cells form bone. And a third dish, the cells form fat cells. The most important and profound understanding in this is that we've been saying genes control uh, our biology, our fate, and our lives. And here I have uh, genetically identical cells in three different environments, and they form three different fates. The point is very profound, and that is the genes didn't control the biology. It was the cells' interaction with the environment that controlled the genes. And you, and you say, well, that's real interesting. I go, well, it's a revolution in thinking because as you introduce, we've been programmed with the belief that genes control us. That, and as far as we know, you know, we didn't pick the gene that came in. If we don't like the genes we have, uh, we can't go out and just change genes. So all of a sudden you realize your life is controlled by these factors, these genes, and you have no control over them. That belief is a belief in victimization. I'm a victim of my heredity. There's cancer running in my family or Alzheimer's or cardiovascular disease. And uh, our belief, oh, these are controlled by genes, and I'm going to be a recipient of those genes. And as a consequence, my fate is determined, victim, poor me. And I say, what's different? The new biology says, no, the genes are controlled by the organism's response to the environment. And why is that important? Because since we can change our environment, then we can control the activity of our genes. And it turns out it's not just the environment, but it's our perception of the environment. Uh, all of a sudden I say, wait, old belief, control life, I'm a victim. New belief, it's called epi. Genetics, epi means above. So when I say genetic control, I'm saying control by genes. When I say epigenetic control, I'm saying control above the genes, above is our mind. And all of a sudden it says, oh my God, I'm free to change my environment, change my mind. And all of a sudden it says, well, then I'm not a victim of my genes, I'm a master of genes. My beliefs control my genetics. And that's when we have to start to then review. What are our beliefs? <laughs> and especially even just in the nature of genes, I'm a victim and my beliefs become my biology. So I create victim. And yet we change our beliefs and we become masters. Wow, that was a long discourse, uh, Greg. Uh, <laughs> uh, so 
<laughs> What's the idea about all this is that we live in a world where we believe we are frail, vulnerable people, victims of things around us, viruses, bacteria, parasites, and all that, and that uh, we're just helpless creatures when it turns out we are so powerful <laughs> that we don't, we underestimate who we really are. I mean, take an example, uh, people can walk across hot coals. Of course, that's based on their belief issues. Those that uh, waver in that belief as they're walking across the coals immediately get burned. So it's a it's really a belief issue. Uh, um, another thing, I, I show pictures in my lecture of these uh, uh, weightlifters, these muscle-bound guys, and there's a guy lifting up a, the tail end of a car, perspiration, muscles bulging, and we go, wow, yeah, you got to be really strong. And then I show a bunch of articles about everyday average women who lift up a car if their child's caught underneath the car. And I've got articles from all over the world about that. And basically says, oh, my God, an unathletic, untrained woman uh, can lift up the car uh, with the same ability as this muscle-bound guy. But it's based on belief because when her child's under the car, there's no uh, doubt in her mind that she's going to lift that car. And she does. Uh, and, and one last one, just to show the power of our minds uh, down here in the U.S. in the South, we got people that work the uh, fundamentalists that work themselves up into a religious ecstasy, and they do what is called testify. They they do things to show that God protects them, no matter how stupid the thing is that they do, such as playing with very poisonous snakes, rattlesnakes, copperheads, cottonmouth snakes. These are very poisonous, and with the belief that God protects them, these serpent handlers play with these snakes, and even if they get bitten. They don't have really any negative consequences, but those are the lightweights because the one I really want to talk about are the guys and women who drink strychnine poison in toxic doses with the firm belief that God will protect them. Uh, and so guess what? They drink absolute poison and they have no harmful consequences. W what allows that to happen? The answer is their belief. So all of a sudden it says, we believe we're frail, then I can say, oh, yeah, but you can walk across fire, you can lift up a car, you can drink poison, and all of a sudden, maybe not as frail as we think we are. Now, there'll be some people who will <clears throat> perhaps be listening to this and think, in terms of applying this to your day-to-day -day life and making positive changes, that what you're describing is a form of quote-unquote positive thinking. You do address this in Spontaneous Evolution to say there's a little bit more to this than just you know reading Think and Grow Rich and writing a wish list and that sort of thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the uh, that's like this. Uh, the lazy way of thinking, oh, all I have to do is just sit here and my thoughts will manifest everything in front of me. Uh, not in today's world. <laughs> and there's a reason for this. And, and there, here are the two influences on why positive thinking doesn't work as well as we would like it to work in most cases. Number one. Yes, indeed, the mind controls our biology and our behavior, but then we have to recognize there are two minds. And this is very critical to whatever discussion we have, uh, Greg, so I'll just go into it a little bit. There's the conscious mind and the subconscious mind. The conscious mind, the latest edition of evolution, is uh, a lobe of your brain right behind your forehead called the prefrontal cortex. The Previous to that development of that lobe, the rest of the brain, by definition, is today what we call the subconscious mind. And then we add that lobe and we add the conscious mind. And I say, well, what's the nature of this new prefrontal cortex? Well, it's a seat of our personal identity. It's uh, our source. It's uh, our connection with spirit. This is where we as individuals stand out in the conscious mind. The uh, subconscious mind is a little different. The subconscious mind is the equivalent of a, of a recording and playback device. It records experiences, push the button, plays the experiences back. It's where habits come from, for example. And here's the big difference. The conscious mind is you. 
that mind <clears throat> is creative. So if I say, hey, Greg, what are you doing next week? Uh, I think you could think into the future and give me an idea what you're going to do. Or, uh, and, and right away, by definition, that's creativity for a simple reason. Next week's not here, and yet you already have a vision. So uh, that's an example of creativity. But the other factor of the conscious mind is this. It, it can go in time. It could go forwards the next week. It can review last week. Uh, the conscious mind, uh, you can have a daydream so that you're up in your head someplace uh, while you're awake but not paying attention. Uh, here's the point. The conscious mind, creative, listen to this, this is critical, the conscious creative mind has your wishes, desires, and what you want from life. It also is the source of positive thinking, which by nature is creative thinking. So I say, okay, all of this comes from this conscious mind. And then I also, then I throw in the monkey wrench to the conscious mind, that is this, when you're thinking or looking into the future, reviewing life, looking into the past, uh, making plans. When you're thinking, the conscious mind, by definition, is not paying attention. And so when you're thinking, the brain defaults into the programs of the subconscious mind. So that, so for example, you give a simple example. Uh, when you first tried to learn how to drive a car, you had to practice, and you practice. Well, practicing makes a habit, and so you learn how to drive a car by creating a habit in your subconscious mind. When you've been driving a car for years, guess what? You, you don't think about the details of driving. Let's say you and I get in the car, Greg, and you're driving. You, we're going to go to some place. You put the key in. We start driving. We get into this great conversation. And, uh, and at some point, I'm sure you've experienced this, as most all of us have, is you look out the window and you realize you haven't paid attention to the road for the last 10 minutes. You were so involved in the discussion. And I go, well, very important fact about that. Number one, uh, your conscious mind was focused on the discussion. So by default, the operations of the rest of your life, including the driving the, driving the car, are run by the subconscious mind, the habit mind. You learned how to drive a car, so knowing how to drive a car is already built into the mind and uh, the subconscious mind. And, and, and more important, just to add this little note to say the subconscious mind is not a bad thing, but it's very powerful. It's a million times more powerful a computer than the conscious mind. So uh, here's the point. We're back in the car we just driven uh, 10 minutes while we're in this great conversation. You look up the window and you say, oh, my goodness, I really haven't paid attention to the road while we're having a conversation. I go, yeah, right. But then I say this, uh, Greg, can you tell me what we talked about in our conversation? You go, yeah, Bruce, we talked about this and this and this. I go, great. Then I say, Greg, tell me what happened on the road while we were driving for 10 minutes. And then you go, well, I, I don't really know. I wasn't paying attention. And I go, Okay, that's the story, and that's the major point. It goes like this. When our conscious minds are focused on things, whether in the future or the past or conversation or just daydreaming, our default runs to the subconscious mind. The subconscious mind has programs in it that allow us from habit to carry out, whether it's our job, driving a car, walking. You don't have to pay attention to the, the programs because they're automatic. They're habits. Now, here... The big monkey wrench, and if people get this, this is why their lives don't work the way they think they want them to work, and it works like it's because of this. It is now established by science that our conscious minds spend about 95% of the time in thought, just flipping from thought to thought to thought back and forth. Well, the problem is this. By definition, the, the moment the, the conscious mind is not paying attention, for example, when it's in thought, then we default to the subconscious program. You drove the car, 
you didn't have to pay attention to the driving the car. You went down the street. You didn't hit anybody. You stayed in the traffic. The subconscious mind handled all that beautifully. But when it was doing that, you yourself didn't even see what was happening. So it was all done by habit. So it turns out, guess what? 95% of the time, the conscious mind is engaged in thought, meaning 95% of our life is coming from programs that are habits in the subconscious mind. And that means only 5% of the time are we moving in the directions of our wishes, our desires, our aspirations, our positive thinking. Only 5% of the time are we engaged in that. 95% of the time, we're unconsciously playing habits out of the subconscious mind. And now the kicker, the fundamental habits about how to deal with life were downloaded into our minds in the first seven years of our development because our brain activity was primarily in, in electroencephalograph EEG range of theta, which is hypnosis. Point about it is this. Then the fundamental programs of how you deal with life, they're not your behaviors. You downloaded them just by strictly observing your father, your mother, your family, your community. You learned how to become a functioning member of that community by observing others, recording their behaviors, and putting it in the subconscious. So why this becomes important is that when your conscious mind's busy and you default to the subconscious, guess what? You're not playing your wishes and desires. You're playing the programs you got from other people. Psychologists tell us 70% or more of those programs are disempowering, limiting, self-sabotaging and why is that important now we go back to our everyday life and i hope this is the conclusion so we can get to the discussion uh we come back to our everyday life greg and i say 95 percent of the time we're operating from our subconscious programs because our conscious mind only pays attention five percent of the time the conscious mind when it pays attention is directing you toward wishes and desires and what you want from life when the conscious mind is busy 95 percent of the time you default to your behavioral programs in the subconscious mind. And then I say, ah, but the programs in your subconscious mind, the fundamental ones, are not yours. They came from other people. They don't answer your wishes and desires and what you want. In fact, they sabotage us. So the average person wakes up in the morning, says, I'm going forward with positive thinking about a great relationship, being healthy, having a great job. Every day I get out there with that positive thinking, with wishes and desires. And at the end of the day, I come home and go, gosh, it never really worked out the way I wanted. And that leads us to believe that we are victims of fate or victims of the universe because we intended to be successful and at the end of the day, we, we weren't successful. And then we blame, oh, it's the world is against me because I went out being, you know, with my mind to be successful. And then I go, okay, what happened? Well, during the day, yes, 5% of the time you were moving in the direction you wanted to go. And 95% of the time, you're operating on limiting, self-sabotaging programs. And because they come from the subconscious, as we described, you don't see that you're even doing them. And the net result is we end up shooting ourselves in the foot and then complaining about how come we can't get anywhere <laughs> and then blame it on the universe. And, and so you say, well, what does all this mean? Greg, to some, there's a movie called The Matrix. And a lot of people think that's a science fiction movie. And the fact is, no, it's not. It's a documentary <laughs> because it says we 
are been, we have been programmed. Yes, every one of us has been programmed before age seven, but we've been programmed by other people's beliefs and attitudes and uh, their understanding of life. And as a result, when we operate during the day, 95% of those time, those programs, we sabotage our lives and it's done invisibly. And when we take the red pill and get out of the programming, what do you think happens? And I'll give you, here's the answer because it's a new book that will be coming out in the spring. It's called The Honeymoon Effect. And you say, what's that? I say, listen, your life is going on every day, blah, blah, blah. It's not really great. And then you meet this special person. And all of a sudden you fall in love and you express or, you know, live what I call the honeymoon effect. And it may last a, a few days, a week, a month, if you're lucky, a year. I say, what is the honeymoon effect? I go, go back to a time you fell head over heels in love with somebody. Just, you know, and it, it didn't have to be the, the forever thing. It's just some time when you fell so in love. And I asked three questions. At that time you fell so in love, um, were you healthy? Almost everybody says exuberantly healthy. And I say, did you have energy? Everyone laughs because they know they made love for days without stopping for food or, or <laughs> sleep. <laughs> and, and then thirdly, I say, was life so beautiful when you fell in love like this that you couldn't wait for the next day to have more experiences of the same? Was it sort of like heaven on earth? And everybody goes, yes, yes, yes. And I go, well, guess what? That was not a coincidence. It was not an accident. You created a heaven on earth experience. I said, well, how'd you do that? Your life right up until you met this person may have been just blah, 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 or even, oh, I can't stand life. But then you meet this person and now you're living heaven on earth. And I say, you know what? Here's the how it worked. It, it turns out science has now recognized that when you fall in love like that, it's the one time in your life where you essentially don't run from subconscious programs. So the reason love is so exciting, you keep your conscious mind present all the time. At the, why would you let your mind wander when everything you wanted was right in front of your face? So you stay in the conscious mind and go, well, why is that important? Because you're not now operating your life only 5% with your wishes and desires. Now you're operating your life with 90 to 100% of your conscious wishes and desires. That means every decision, every action is thought out uh, by you in support of what you want. And, and you created heaven on earth. <clears throat> Thinking about my own experience and everything tends to work. It's not usual to be head over heels in love and have one other corner of your life going really badly, everything seems, it seems to be serendipity, synchronicity, everything seems to work. Yeah, but that's the fun part because as we attribute it to, wow, what a coincidence, what serendipity, and all of a sudden I say, it wasn't. It was, the reason is this, science has recognized <clears throat> that in that period, you don't default to the subconscious programs, meaning you're not running off of those invisible programs that have been controlling you 95% of the time and you didn't even see what they were. You are now running from your strictly your wishes and desires. That's why every action, even in the workplace, if you're in love with somebody over here, but you're in the workplace, your conscious mind is staying present. So all your decisions are made uh, uh, in regard to what you wanted, the positive thinking. This is why positive thinking fails for most people. Simple reason. Positive thinking is creative thinking from the conscious mind on a day to day life. We only operate 5% of the time. So positive thinking is not really given a lot of emphasis in our day-to-day -day life. It's small, little, tiny percentage. But if you fall in love and operate from the conscious mind, 
then all of your positive thoughts are operating 90 to 100 percent of the time and you're creating from that and all of a sudden you realize yes this is what the whole concept of the matrix is all about the struggles i face in this world are not because of of my conscious wishes and desires they're because of my unconscious programming when i eliminate the programming via the matrix you take the red pill or in your own personal life experience, even though it may have only been a short time, you essentially eliminated the programs when you fell in love. And I said, well, what was the consequence of that? Is Well, when I stopped using the program, I had honeymoon, I had heaven on earth, I created life that was so beautiful. I said, you know, that's available to you every day, <laughs> except for the fact when we get back into regular life, we start shifting back into only 5% coming from those wishes and desires and the programs kick in. The program sabotaged the honeymoon. That's why the honeymoon disappears. The honeymoon disappears because you and the other person came together expressing uh, behaviors that were coherent with your wishes and desires and what you wanted. And together, those wishes and desires created heaven on earth. Then I say, yeah, but life gets busy. And you still are in love, but you still got to pay the rent. You got to fix the car. And all of a sudden, your conscious mind starts thinking, oh, yeah, I got to do this. I got to do that. And I say, yeah, but what happens when your conscious mind is not in the present moment? The answer is default. You go into the subconscious program. And then guess what? The behaviors you're playing are not yours. They're the ones you got from your mother, your father, your family, the people you grew up with. So the behaviors you're playing when you're not paying attention in no way necessarily support anything you want. And yet what happens in the honeymoon is you had the honeymoon because both conscious minds were creating wishes and desires. And the honeymoon ends when you introduce the behaviors that were hidden in the subconscious mind until your life got busy. And then they started to play. And it was like, oh, God, where these behaviors come from? This is where one partner in the, in the relation looks at the other and goes, who are you when some strange behavior emanates? Uh, and the fact is, then we have to realize why the honeymoon got lost because now uh, new behaviors are introduced into the relationship that were not part of the honeymoon, that these behaviors are generally negative and not supportive of us. And, and then when we play them, and here's the catch, we played them because we were not paying attention. And when we played them, even we didn't see what we said or did. And when we start playing negative behaviors that we got from other people and we don't see it, then we sabotage ourselves and then blame it on the world. And the fact is, take the red pill, control the programming, and you end up creating heaven on earth, honeymoon effect for every day of your life while you're on this planet. It does not have to be that wonderful, exciting little period that was there and then disappeared. It could be there forever. Now, the subconscious is not necessarily our enemy, despite what you're saying. It's sort of a neutral, you know, repository for these programs. So it strikes me the first step then is to discover what is in our subconscious so we can reprogram it. Uh, yeah, and I love this. I'm glad you brought that up, Greg. So number one, yes, the first fact is absolutely right. If we didn't have a subconscious, we wouldn't be able to process, we wouldn't be able to do anything on this planet for a simple reason. For example, how many days did it take you to learn how to walk when you were an infant? How to stand up so that the brain could uh, adjust the muscle tensions and, uh, with, and hold you up straight and allow you to move without falling over? This is a tremendous amount of neurological processing. It's just unimaginable how much nerve involvement there is in walking. And I go, it, once you learned how to walk, you never had to think about it again. Why? 
because it's a program in the subconscious. You don't even have to say, I need to walk to the other room. You envision something you want in the other room and, and you think I'm going to go get it. Automatic walking occurs. Well, that's because the subconscious remembers how to walk and it, you don't need to think about it. Uh, point. The subconscious helps us in our everyday lives so we don't have to relearn everything day in and day out and repeat it over and over again. The subconscious it has no good or bad to it. The subconscious is sort of like an old technology, let's say a tape recorder, okay, or CD recorder, okay? What's the point? The point is this. Uh, you record something on the CD and you play the program. And you say that, you know, that sucks. And then you say, oh, yeah, the CD player is really crap. <laughs> and I go, no, wait, it's the disc that's the problem, not the CD player. And I say the programs are added to the machine. So consider the subconscious as a machine. It's not bad or good, but it's a machine. It's the programming you put in there that determines bad or good. If you didn't have the subconscious, as I said, you spend every day just trying to stand up. and You never get past that because the next morning you'd have to start learning it again. Subconscious, good. Programming, maybe bad. <laughs> hmm. and, and then, and so then the idea is this. And then you say, well, Bruce, uh, in your book, you talk about that the programming actually started in the last trimester of pregnancy. So while you were a fetus, you were being heavily programmed by the environmental information you're receiving from your mother. And, and the significance about that is that programming continues until we're about seven years of age. The, the Jesuits knew about the power of programming the subconscious mind. Remember, our lives, no matter how much our conscious wishes and desires want to take us someplace, 95% of our life comes from the subconscious programming. And I say, the Jesuits knew this for 500 years. The Jesuits would say, um, give me a child until it's six or seven, and it will belong to the church for the rest of its life. Or more biblically, they would say, give me a child, and I will show you the man. What they already knew is, if I can get your first six or seven year programming, I own your life. Why? Because while your life is running from the conscious mind, you're only going to use it 5% of the time. So whatever program I put in, that's what's going to happen to you. So that was known already for 500 years. So the issue about it is this. The programming occurred before I was seven. A lot of it occurred in utero. And the first one, two, or three years of my life, I have no conscious recollection of what happened then. So I can't say I, I know what the programs are. They were put in before I was even aware. And then you say, oh my God, then how are we going to know what the programs are? And then I go, well, here's the fun part. Think about it, Greg. 95% of our life is coming from the subconscious. That's, that's the data. I say, well, why is that relevant? And I go, because your life is a printout of your subconscious programming. So guess what? You don't need to go backwards in time to see the issues in your subconscious mind, you're playing your subconscious mind every day, 95% of the time. So it goes simply like this. The things that work for you, the things that come easily to you in your life and the things you want that come into your life come in because you have programs in your subconscious mind that support that. In contrast, anything you have wishes and desires for but have trouble obtaining that you have to work hard for that you have to put a lot of effort into you have to sweat over to create the reason why you're working so hard is because your subconscious programming does not support those things so basically you just look at your life and say all the things that work that i really like work because the programs in my subconscious support that and then all of a sudden you say, yeah, and anything I struggle with, anything I have to work hard for in my life, 
it's because I have subconscious programs that are inhibiting that. And all of a sudden you say, oh, well, now you know what the programs are. If you're not healthy, you have a belief issue that is, uh, you know, undermining your health. If you can't find a relationship is because you have behaviors that are invisible. Why are they invisible? Because you got them programmed from other people. Subconscious mind play when you don't see it. You have invisible behaviors that interfere with you getting to your destination. The invisible behaviors are not coming from the universe, they're coming from you. So look at your life. What works is because you've got behavior programs to support it, and what doesn't work is because you have programs that do not uh, support that very end, and now you know where to go. Uh, what do you need to change in your life? And the answer is look at not working and, and turn that into a positive present tense statement uh, in the reverse. And that's what you want to put into your mind. Two thoughts that came up for me there. Um, one was that I've had some interesting conversations with people explaining to them when I tell them the fact that I'm adopted. So I don't know who my natural parents are. For me, this has been extremely liberating. And they say, oh, don't you want to find out who your parents are? And, oh, you know, what if you were, you know, what if you were an unwanted child? I'm going to say, well, I don't know any of that. I can speculate endlessly about that. But the point is, I'm not carrying any preconceptions. My natural father could have died younger than I am now from cancer. And his father could have died younger than I know from cancer. Whatever. I just simply don't know. So therefore, I can't, I can't act or not act based on any of that. Important because in your personal story, I just want to add this. So think about it. Um, Although you don't know your original parents, your basic programming of your behavior was greatly influenced uh, before you were born mm -hmm. uh, or and they're in your subconscious. So you have no conscious awareness of what behaviors were were put in. But uh, you uh, they are sometimes and, and this is for for a large number of adopted children. They came from a situation that wasn't that great. That's why they had to be adopted, that something was not right. If it was like something out of wedlock or uh, the family, it was just it was a monkey wrench. They couldn't afford this situation and, and they reject the child uh, because it's like, oh, my God, we can't do this. That rejection by the parents is chemically relayed by the by the uh, blood of the mother the chemicals of her emotions uh, go across the placenta and the fetus becomes programmed by the same emotion. So I just want, want you to know that while you have no conscious memory of your parents and their history, which is very important, and that's what you said, and I, I agree with you 100%, very important, I just want you to recognize that there was still programming before you were born, uh, and um, and that, that's in there, and it may it all depends on what the circumstances are. Uh, it may or may not interfere with your wishes and desires and your efforts uh, at uh, creating the life you want. But I just want you to know that hidden back in there, there's still programming from before birth. Yes, yeah, I was, uh, when I read your book, I did the, the consider all that information in that light. Um, the other thought that came up in your previous section was that I was at a, an event once, um, public event, and there were some speakers and they were basically getting awards for bravery. And there was a fairly young woman there who was standing up and talking about her life experience and how her mother had died relatively young from breast cancer. And so had her grandmother. And she was healthy, but she'd had a double mastectomy um, because a doctor or doctors had advised her that she was highly likely 
to get serious breast cancer. And just in the light of everything that I'd read, I I was very, very conflicted about it because she was getting a standing ovation for her bravery. But I couldn't help thinking about it differently. And maybe things could have been different. I don't know what you'd think about a situation like that. That precise situation where I met this woman and uh, and she was telling me about, well, look, uh, my uh, mother died of the breast cancer. My grandmother died. My aunt died of the breast cancer. My father is a doctor. My brother is a doctor. And they convinced her that she was going to be, uh, you know, a victim of breast cancer. And she just had a baby. She's a young woman. She had her second little child. And she said, now I'm going to have my mastectomy. And I'm going, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, my brother, my father, my family history all say this is going to happen. And as a result, uh, I'm going to, you know, interfere with that by just cutting off my breast right now and not going to face it. And, and I go, but, you know, this is not necessarily true at all. Uh, and, and I said, you know, uh, it, it's also because it's very interesting when they use the word mastectomy, it's so clean and sterile. It's so medically oriented. You know, it's like, oh, I'm having a mastectomy. Oh, that's a nice procedure. The truth is, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm altering my body, you know, uh, I'm, I'm I'm destroying myself, you know. So basically, uh, it, it's it, it, when you say that, you know, I, I'm I'm just you know mutilating my body. That's what it's about. Okay, I am mutilating my body. That is the actual uh, technical term. If you say that, I'm going to mutilate myself. It doesn't sound the same as I'm having a mastectomy. So, so when it becomes clinical and science, and you look at the data, you take the belief system and you put the genes in there. Of course, this is her belief. The issue was this, as I was talking with her and trying to suggest that there was an alternative understanding that actually she didn't need to do that. The more I heard her speak, the more I heard a pattern like a, you know, like a, a track that's played over and over and over and over again. And her belief system is I'm going to get cancer if my breasts are not removed. And after a little bit, I realized, no, I, I shouldn't really... Um, try to defer this woman for a very simple reason. Her belief is so strong she's going to get the cancer, that she's going to get the cancer whether you take the breasts off or not if she keeps that belief. But now that she's got a belief that her breasts will, will stop the cancer, then she's now got a, in her mind, she created one belief, I'm going to be a victim. And then she created another belief that I don't have to be a victim, uh, uh, but the only way to do that, take her breast off. And I realized I should not interfere with this woman. If she does not remove her breasts, her subconscious program will clearly create the cancer. And I just want people to understand that there because there's a lot of cancer stories. I just want people to first glimpse clear up something. Only about 10% of cancer is associated with heredity. 90% of cancer is due to lifestyle. And you say, well, how, give me you know, an understanding of that. Now, I say, here's an interesting study. They looked at the fate of children adopted into families that have a lineage of cancer. They found that the adopted child will get the same family cancer with the same probability as any of the natural genetic siblings. And why is this relevant? And the answer is this. The child came from totally different genetics. The child got the cancer because of the lifestyle, the programming of behavior, uh, and all of this that is passed down during that first seven years of programming. So 
while we look at, uh, at cancer as a, a genetic lineage, it, it also reveals it does, it's not necessarily genetic lineage. It's a lineage of uh, a lifestyle, learning how to respond to life that is actually self-destructive. Uh, so it's passed from generation to generation during that first seven years. And that's why it's very hard when people say, well, it's running in my family. Consistent belief is, yes, running in your family means genetics. And I go, no, new story with the concept of epigenetics and how our perceptions alter and control our biology. Then it turns out that uh, these beliefs uh, are passed in the same way as genes and are as powerful as the genes. A belief controls a gene. A gene does not control a belief. And, and so negative programming uh, is the issue that we all have to face with. And, and, um, and it's very particularly important about that woman with uh, with the belief that is so strong in a family where the behavior leads to cancer. Um, if she doesn't change her belief system, uh, then she's inevitably uh, going to be a victim of that cancer unless she does the other belief in that is remove the breasts. This brings us into the general area of um medicine and uh you know treatment with drugs and surgery and what have you I'm allopathic uh, medicine which um actually in the u.s and i'm sure it's similar figures in other western countries um medical treatment is one of the largest causes of death actually in the states and the new thinking that's been and the new science that you document uh, with your work and in your books is pointing the way to an, a, an approach that's radically different to dealing with illness uh, and one that's much less simplistic, much sort of much more holistic than straightforward allopathic medicine, which basically treats our bodies just like biological machines. Yeah, it's a, it's a biological machine uh, analogy is very important. Uh, some people talk about our bodies as vehicles, like vehicles for our soul. Let's take that image of vehicles and say, let's look at the, our bodies as a physical car. And that spirit, our soul, our personal identity is uh, in that car, okay? When you look at the, the uh, health of your car, uh, how, how long is it useful and functional for you and be, how long does it take to go in the junkyard? Uh, when I talk about the life of your car and we say, well, the car breaks down, uh, we go to the repair person who looks at the car, makes a diagnosis, and then uh, does a, some kind of treatment to, uh, to bring it back to health again, okay? In this case, we look at the car as the cause of the problem. Yeah, you know, the engine went bad, the brakes went bad, or whatever this is going on. And we say, yeah, the car, the, there's, the car is bad. Uh, and the, the idea about it is this. Medicine looks at the biological body as a vehicle, but it's driven by a computer called DNA, the genes. So it's a gene-driven vehicle. Point. If there's anything that goes wrong with a vehicle, then it's due to something uh, uh, mechanically in the vehicle itself. So the genes or the chemistry or whatever it is, is uh, interfering with the programming and the machine breaks. Uh, and when you think of it that way, then medicine is, this, is very analogous to the repair person in, in the garage. You go into the doctor's office, he lifts up your hood, he looks inside, he makes a diagnosis, uh, and then he carries out a repair using drugs and surgery. Uh, and so every time we go in, we blame the vehicle for the problem. Uh, and here's an interesting thing. If you do go into a junkyard, uh, 
and you see these thousands of cars here. And I say, well, what percent of these cars are here because they were just lemons and built at the factory incorrectly and they, they were doomed? Uh, and I would have to say less than 5% of the cars in there. I say, well, then how did all the other cars get in here? Well, they were good vehicles, but the drivers really created problems. Way they drove the vehicle or, or maintained the vehicle, uh, causing the vehicle to end up in the junkyard. And I say, well, why is this relevant? Because the answer is, in biology, today we see the vehicle driven by genes, uh, but the new science, especially epigenetics, says, no, the genes aren't driving the vehicle. It's the mind driving the genes. So all of a sudden it says, then your biolo biological body is a vehicle, but your mind is a driver. Absolutely. And I say, why is that important? Because I say, with good driver education, you can maintain the health of the body and let it run for a long, 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 long time and never go to the junkyard. But if you are not a good driver of the vehicle, you're very rough with it. You slam on the brakes, you hit the gas, you jerk it around, you don't maintain it, uh, then your vehicle goes downhill real fast. Well, guess what? The new biology is the biology that says we introduce you the driver of the vehicle who plays one of the most important roles on whether the vehicle lasts and it's healthy and will operate effectively. Medicine has left us out of the picture. And that's why all of a sudden the new biology, the new, the new world of belief is starting to put people back in charge saying, wait, I, I am in, I'm controlling this. But then I say, well, the problem with with our controlling it is, yeah, there's the conscious mind with wishes and desires. That's like the passenger in the back seat telling the driver, hey, listen, I want to go over here. And then finding out that the driver is actually the subconscious mind and it's going to take you wherever the subconscious mind wants to go, not where you go. So we find ourselves sort of like hidden in the back seat of a vehicle going out of control, going, what's wrong with this vehicle? Not realizing we're sitting in the back seat. We're not driving it. We're letting the subconscious drive it. As I said, what happens when you get behind the wheel yourself and consciously drive the vehicle? I say, oh, you drove yourself into heaven on earth, honeymoon effect. Uh, and when you let the subconscious drive, uh, we generally end up in the junkyard somewhere because our programming drivers is not good. Now the new science simply reveals this, that it's us, our thoughts, our personality, who we are, that's controlling the genes. So we have to become more responsible drivers. And that also means them becoming aware, as we've talked about up to this point, that right now, while we think we drive the vehicle, we've actually been in the back seat. And our programming has been driving the vehicle. And if we come from a family where cancer is part of the programming, guess what? We, we've been programmed to, to go that same way as well. And yet, our belief system says genes did that, but the new biology said, no, we are responsible. And this means a whole new change of thinking in this planet as to who we are and how we influence our personal lives and how collectively our collective thinking creates the, the planetary experiences we all have. And, and this is the great revolution. I'm a master with some bad programming. Uh, we'll turn to the global aspects of this in a moment, uh, but I just wanted to ask you uh, briefly, a lot of people consider that uh, on average across the board that, you know, human race has never been healthier and living longer lives than ever, uh, even though a lot of the advances uh, in human health and longevity over the last couple of hundred years have been down to actually to hygiene uh, yes. more than anything else. But in the terms of the, the new science that you set out in the biology of belief, what do you think accounts for the 
virtual epidemics that we're having with cancer and heart disease, particularly in the developed world? The, uh, uh, the most important understanding about that right now is a fact that uh, has been uh, reviewed here in the United States, and that is 90% of doctor office visits are directly attributable to stress. So it turns out, well, we've been blaming our ill health on the genes and the breakdown of our biochemical machinery. It turns out that we're now recognizing we as drivers, without having proper understanding of driving the vehicle and maintaining it, are stressing the vehicle. And stressing the vehicle inevitably causes any stress vehicle uh, to break wherever the stresses are most directly applied. Uh, so it, it becomes really important for us to recognize that our limitations are, are, are actually the fact that we have been programmed to, to age, for example. We see everybody age as infants. What do you think you learned in the first six years about people? Oh, first they start out as young, and then they get older, and then they get really old like grandparents. And at some point, they're, oh, I have a program. A human being starts out this way and then goes this way. We already have envisioned you know, old age, uh, and, and we manifest it. And then you say, yeah, that's just the nature's way of life. And I say, no, that's just the collective belief system that we, that we bought into. And, and that, the, you know, there's a history of, of, of findings from ancient people that people lived a lot longer than the lifespan that we're in. In fact, let, let me also clear up a very interesting fact. They say we're living a lot longer now than we did in the past. That's not true. Uh, and the reason is this, the, the average, Median age is, yes, we live longer now than in the past. I say, but why? And the answer is this. Because what you have to include in the data is how many infants die? How many children die? Because if, uh, uh, let's say I live to be 100 and, uh, and a child lives to be 10, uh, I say, well, what's the median age for life in that world of those two people? And I say, oh, the median age is you take 100, add it to 10, 110, divide it in half. Oh, Median age is 55 years of age. It's like, yeah, but what has happened is infant mortality and childhood deaths have been essentially, uh, you know, significantly reduced. So when you don't add uh, the infants who die uh, to the median age, the median age is higher and higher and higher. When you start adding a lot of infants, no, you drop the median age lower and lower. So when we say people are living longer, that's median age. We attribute it in our minds to, well, we're healthier today. And the fact is, no, we're not. It's just that the young people are dying today, uh, and therefore we're looking older. In history, there are people that lived as longer, longer than we have. And, and uh, uh, as a matter of fact, from a biological insight, uh, we should live to a minimum of 140 years of age as biological organisms. Our, our limitations are, are not because of our biology, but they're because of our belief system and the way we live life. And that's why we're going through a, 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 an evolution here, because the way we have been living our lives is so destructive that as a, a civilization living these destructive ways we are actually now destroying the planet on which we live. Uh, we are, are facing the, the sixth mass extinction of life on this planet. Uh, and uh, well, the five previous mass extinctions where life was full out growing and then boom, something happened and it ended. And then evolution started all over again from the little bits and pieces left over. Five times this happened, but it's been attributed to things like comets or asteroids hitting the earth, destroying the environment. Today... 
we are in the sixth mass extinction, meaning we're losing species of organisms and destroying habitats faster than in the previous five mass extinctions. And yet, who's causing it? What's, what's the cause of it? And it turns out, human behavior. So we have been programmed individually. And then collectively, those programs have created a, a, a world where we're destroying our world because of, of the programming that is, is not supporting our survival. And now in the face of all this, there's an evolutionary upheaval. This is what's happening in our world today. And it's the most important upheaval that you could ever imagine on the planet because it says we must transcend from the way we are living at this moment, which is causing the sixth mass extinction. We must transcend this and create a different way of behavior and life on this planet to get out of this this uh, uh, you know extinction, which is looming in front of us. So it's a choice. We have something different. Yes, and your basic uh, analogy that you use is if we consider the cells that make up um, our bodies, however many trillion that is, and how they work in cooperation to to keep us healthy and to heal us when we we do get sick. If you map that up to from cells to citizens to nations and think of the planet as you know as as a body as it were, the the idea of, of conflict over resources and wars between nations and racial divisions and religious divisions at a cellular level, if our bodies behaved like that, we would sicken and die. And that's exactly what's happening at the macro level. But we can change that and cooperation is the key and that's when you also go on to discuss darwinian evolution and how that's a flawed model and in fact cooperation is what you know, achieves anything of note yeah this is uh, it's actually fun because just in the last couple of months uh the public has been exposed to new articles from science uh, emphasizing the fact that competition is not really the drive of evolution the drive of evolution is cooperation and then you say, well, why is that relevant? I said, well, we built a culture programmed on Darwinian belief that life is a struggle and that we must compete with each other. And in that competition for fitness, it's a winner and loser. I win, you lose. And that is the nature of the game. So create, start that as a foundational belief for a civilization, then create a culture that believes in that. And then you see the world that we live in today with people competing each other, ignoring other people as being irrelevant. Uh, you know, I'm out for me. I don't care about you. And I say, where do all these beliefs come from? Well, it's a cultural belief that this is the way life works. So if that's the way it works, get into a behavior to you know, encourage yourself, uh, uh, basically, so we get into what kind of behavior we live on this planet. Uh, is summed up in uh, he who has the most toys when he dies wins. Uh, this is the race for material possessions and hierarchy and competition and fitness. And we created a world based on it and accept it that we can say, yeah, look at all those people starving in Africa, and you go, oh yeah, well Darwinian says, oh yeah, the, they they don't deserve to live because uh, that's why they're dying. <laughs> and so that's just Darwinian. It's like, oh my God, they missed the whole point. The whole point is this. The planet doesn't care about individuals, the Darwinian uh, winning. The, the, if we had to go in and, and defend human existence in the face of this extinction that we're creating, we had to go into court with God 
and Mother Nature in that court. Uh, and we go in there and we say, yeah, no, you should keep us alive because uh, uh, we created people like uh, Albert Einstein and, and Mozart and, and uh, you know, Rembrandt. And look at all these wonderful individuals. And the court would look at our defense and say, we don't care about the individuals. We care what the human population is doing to the planet. The individuals mean nothing to Mother Nature. And all of a sudden it says, wait, what is important to Mother Nature? And the idea is this. She created a garden. <laughs> a garden, by its definition, is not a battleground. A garden is, a, is a, an idealization of cooperation. And all of a sudden you realize that evolution is driven by cooperation. I go, absolutely. And I go, and then what about the nature of human civilization? Oh, that's driven by competition. Oh, Jesus, you know. You're 180 degrees off track as a human civilization. It's coming together. That is the is the evolution. It's coming together and recognize, as you mentioned earlier, Greg, when I talk about cells, uh, you know, the human body is a community of 50 trillion cells. The cells are the living entity. Uh, uh, Bruce Lipton is, by definition, uh, appears to be a human being. But I say, yeah, but a human being, by definition, is 50 trillion cells living in a cooperative uh, harmony with each other. And, and the significance is each cell has a, a life, a job. Each cell gets uh, protection. Each cell is given nourishment. Uh, all the basics are provided to all the cells through their cooperativity. Uh, each cell is the equivalent of a miniature human because all of the needs of human are the needs of cells. So whatever we need, we need it because of cells. So cells and humans are equivalent to each other. That's why I say, look, a healthy human body has 50 trillion cellular citizens, each with a job, each live working in harmony. There's an economy, a politic. They can live in harmony, 50 trillion. We have the entire surface of the earth and only 7 billion humans, and we're destroying ourselves. The whole idea is, as the ancient mystic said, the answers lie within. And that, look at how cells create a community of 50 trillion, and look what they did. Think of a single amoeba. What do you think amoeba thinks about? Amoeba is just, you know, surviving. I say, what do 50 trillion amoebas think about? And I go, oh, love, taking a spaceship to the moon, you know, getting online. Uh, and I go, yeah, guess what? We're amoebas. <laughs> and and what, did, what did they do? They created a world that was unimaginable to the individual amoeba. And I'm saying, what is the evolution facing society right now? And that is, we have been living as separate entities driven apart by competition. While the evolution is the coming together of all individuals where each person is the equivalent of a cell in the body of a larger organism called humanity. The evolution that's in front of us is not the evolution of the individual human being. We did that a couple hundred thousand or 300,000 more years ago. The evolution that's in front of us is the evolution of the humans coming together to work in a community to create a super organism called humanity. It's humanity that's trying to evolve. And what does humanity mean? Stop the separations between the individuals via in neighborhoods, in states, in countries, in nations. We are all part of one living organism sharing one culture dish called the earth. And learn that nature and we start cooperating with each other and start living in harmony with the earth then we will be moving in an evolutionary line to support our future not just survival but thriving we could thrive into the future if we understand the nature of the harmony and this is why it's so exciting because 
the structures and the beliefs that have shaped the world in which we live, the beliefs such as that Darwinian belief which shaped culture, uh, have led us to this extinction by living out these beliefs. Now we find out that the fundamental beliefs on which we built the behavior and the culture are flawed. The Darwinian belief in competition is totally wrong. The Darwinian belief that evolution uh, followed a random path just got here by an accident of genetics is wrong. We are built into a, a garden. We were like every organism created to support harmony in the garden. And then you say, yeah, but look, we're facing extinction. I go, yeah, because guess what? We've done everything but support harmony in the garden. And this is why we're changing. And then I get very excited because there's a new generation. They finally have a name called the millennials. People 40 years and under. And I go, what's unique about them? And I go, they're a civilization that is the foundation of the next human phase of life on this planet. I say, what's interesting about them? They're globally interconnected via the Internet. They're sharing ideas and visions and wishes and hopes and desires across the planet, engaging billions of people at the same time. They're not like the old people walling themselves off. They are the people opening up to the global civilization. They're the ones that, uh, like the American election that's going on at this very minute, uh, you know, what this election predicated on, oh, racism, sexism, you know, like, oh, my God, gay marriage or things like It's like, man, <laughs> these old people, uh, they don't conform to the young people because if you bring those topics up to the millennials, they'll say, who cares about that? They're global. They're already communicating across the world. It's the falling down of the old structure that we're seeing right now. The falling of the institutions, government, economy, healthcare, education, religion. All of these foundations are falling, and for a very important reason. Albert Einstein emphasized it. You've heard it before, but this is where it really, where, where the rubber hits the road in his quote, and that is, you cannot solve the problems with the same thinking that created the problems. And then I say, and the problems we face as extinction today are due to the cultural beliefs that are maintained by education, healthcare, religion, economy, government. I said, yeah, those are the institutions whose beliefs we've been following. That they're falling down right now makes a lot of people afraid. And I'm going to try to suggest to our audiences this is the time to be celebrating for a simple reason. If those old institutions don't fall, then we continue living by those beliefs. Extinction is looming, looming in front of us. Not in a thousand years. In the next 50 years, we're undermining the, the entire planet. Scientists, for example, reveal that there won't be fish in the ocean uh, in uh, 30 years because we've harvested them out and destroyed the that a, a globe earth with no fish in the ocean in less than 30 years that's coming and the point about it is these old institutions they're falling is the gateway to the new civilization because we can build the institutions from the ground up with beliefs that support harmony and cooperation rather than competition and violence which is the old storyline so i'm excited and i just want people to understand if they understand they see what's going on we are indeed at this moment in one of the most profound evolutionary shifts on this planet. I don't know if we'll make it or not. That's not a necessary conclusion that we're going to get through this. We're facing a choice point where we have to decide to live either in a new way and then take a chance on, a, on surviving in the future or 
continue the old and uh, head towards certain extinction. So that's a choice. And, and I so appreciate the opportunity you're giving me to, to speak here, Greg. What's important about this choice is that each one of us has to be a participant in this evolution. There's, there's no evolution with us sitting at home in an easy chair waiting to open the door in the morning and see another world. This is an evolution uh, that's going to be created by participation. All of us humans have to participate together as cells working in harmony to create a super living organism. As you mentioned earlier, um, if cells in the body start fighting each other, there's actually a name for that. It's called autoimmune disease. Interestingly, the cells on the planet, the humans, are fighting each other, uh, and autoimmune disease is increasing among human civilization as a living organism. And it's also uh, the cause of most of the illnesses inside our body. What's going on outside and inside are linked. And the evolution that's in front of us is to have all of our listeners out there recognize that we must do something and we must get out of the old belief system and rewrite the uh, programmings. I wish it was as easy as the Matrix. I just say, okay, here, now it's time for the red pill. Let's go. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, essentially, that is exactly what we need to do. And I really believe that uh, our listeners out there uh, really represent the cultural creatives. Those individuals will seed the next version of human civilization. And um, uh, I look forward to all of us working together on that. And to conclude um, spontaneous evolution towards the conclusion uh, explores the nature of consciousness uh, through the prism of quantum physics, which is telling us uh, very exciting and radical things about the world around us, that the universe may just be little more than a thought that matter is ultimately illusion that time does not exist, that we are spiritual beings uh, that transcend the body. And if we can lose our fear uh, of death, which is what all that would boil down to, and see, zoom back out and see the bigger picture and the wider reality, then we, we couldn't carry on destroying the planet the way that we are. But also we would be filled with a, a, such an inspiring vision for the future of, of all life on this planet and beyond. Greg, that, that is uh, my, my, my perception of everything you just talked about is, is the path that we should be totally on with the uh, ending of that path uh, in that world that you just described. This is, this is where we are. We're on this path. And, and um, uh, as I said, uh, we can't sit down. We, we, we got to keep walking on this path and, and taking that red pill uh, and recognizing we have been programmed uh, to be disempowered. Uh, actually, Tony Benn, member of parliament, I, I just love I love a quote from him. And the quote is, governments do not want an intelligent, healthy population because they're very difficult to control. He said that. And it's very interesting because in our country, we now have the, I would have to say, one of the least intelligent populations in, in, in the Western world and also one of the sickest populations in the Western world. And I fully see that uh, we have been taken advantage of and that uh, the leadership somewhere uh, has succeeded in this country uh, to make a very controllable population, just as Tony Benn suggested would happen. And if anyone's considering uh, being, you know, uh, how can I put it, um, overwhelming pessimism looking at the world situation, think how that can change if you realize that life does have a purpose after all and that your life's 
purpose and my life's purpose is to make sure that we do evolve beyond this and become what we can become. Then suddenly you've got a hell of a reason to get up in the morning and get out and do things. Yeah, I have to admit that this is the, the, the thing that just blew me away because as a scientist all the way up through some 40 years of life, I, I was a scientist uh, uh, and, and the concept of spirituality was totally irrelevant to anything in, in my world of biology and biosphere and evolution. It was totally irrelevant. Once I started to understand the nature of how cells were controlled and recognized that the environmental signals were controlling cells and each one of us has uh, receptors for a unique environmental broadcast, uh, meaning that the identity of who we are was coming from the outside being picked up by the cells, I was like, oh my God, uh, not spiritual. And one minute later after this, like, oh my God, seeing how it worked, it was like, oh, I'm not even in this body. I, I'm out there in the field, uh, a plane this body and it just blew my mind because on the mechanistic level I, I realized the nature of spirituality not as a devotional belief and biblical and all that kind of stuff like that I saw it as a mechanism uh, uh, by which the cell controls its own uh, genetics and its behavior and, and so I went from non-spiritual person and, and in this whoop <laughs> To a spiritual person in about a minute, not because of devotion, but because of mechanism. And as you brought out, it profoundly changes your life when you own this, because I owned it now as a science, not as a belief. And I saw I'm immortal because the broadcast is not the the biology of the body. The bio, the body is like a virtual reality suit in which uh, uh, we step into and experience a physical world and sensations like sight and smell and touch, and, uh, and we become creative. Uh, and it's kind of funny, not only did I lose my fear of death because I realized well, the body can die, but the broadcast is always there, uh, but I also started to realize that what is the, I, uh, you know, what is the reason that we are in these bodies in the first place? And I said, because if you're just the spiritual entity, that's an awareness. It's like a thought. You close your eyes, uh, wherever that thought is, it's out there somewhere. It's okay. It's a thought. Uh, the significance is, but to manifest a reality, to have an experience, to fall in love, to see sunsets, to eat chocolate, uh, to build a house, to create something beautiful, um, this is the uh, opportunity we are provided as spirits by having a body. And then when I put it all together and I started from my scientific perspective, started to laugh at the concept that many people think, oh, when I die, I'm going to go to this mythical place called heaven where I could, you know, have all this wonderful life. And I, that my joke I started to laugh at was, no, my God, you got it backwards. When you're born, you're born into heaven because now your your thoughts and uh, and your knowingness are inside this biology suit, the biology suit, the body. Uh, converts sight uh, via the eyes into an electromagnetic vibration by the brain. It can smell and taste and touch and feelings uh, into electromagnetic vibrations by the brain. It's those vibrations that communicate with our source. And I realize, oh my God, this is heaven. This is where you come to manifest your wishes and desires and creativity. And it's like, oh, my, people have so lost this. It's inverted upside down because if you came here with that knowledge and were supported in your creativity and wishes and desires, then imagine a life where you were born into the honeymoon effect and you had the honeymoon, a sense of joy and love and completeness and harmony that the honeymoon offers. 
as a part of your life for every day of your life. That is what the options are in this planet, but we're not experiencing that because our programs have disempowered us and the evolution is we're ready to wake up, ready to take back power and create heaven on earth for ourselves and for all of us. I think that's the destination. Well, Bruce, that's a, a beautiful thought on which to end. Um, perhaps you'd like to just say a little bit about, you know, give out your website. Um, I know you announced your new book coming in the spring. Maybe you've got some events coming up. Just anything you'd like to share. Yeah, a lot of the information we're talking about, you know, because this is just free flow conversation, not scripted, which I enjoy. Uh, the significance is on the website, there's lots of uh, written articles, videos, and audios available on the, all different topics of this uh, biology of your personal life and your personal empowerment and health, and also on the nature of uh, the evolution that we're experiencing right now. Uh, information which I hope really empowers people to see that this is a great opportunity that's in front of us and not fear like the media wants to present it. So please go to the website, check out all the free information uh, uh, about things that uh, Greg and I talked about, brucelipton.com. Very simple. Oh, Bruce, thank you very, very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thank you and, and thank everyone out there for listening. I so appreciate uh, your efforts in creating a better world. Well, that's it for another week. As ever, thank you so much for listening. I very much hope that you find this interview to be inspiring and uplifting. And if you haven't already, I urge you to check out both The Biology of Belief and Spontaneous Evolution. Taken together, they offer a truly life-changing shift in perspective. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website. That's legalizefreedom.com, legalize-freedom.com. And there you'll find an archive of programs on many equally fascinating topics. Until next time... I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to LegalizeFreedom.com.